Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. Chapter 17 of Revelation takes place at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, half of the way through the Tribulation. Now, there are differences between chapter 17 and 18 that you need to know about. Chapter 17 is about spiritual Babylon, and chapter 18 is about political Babylon. John is seeing a vision in the first six verses of chapter 17 of the destruction of spiritual Babylon. It's the destruction of the false religion that will unite the world in the first half of the tribulation, only to be replaced with the worship of the Antichrist himself in the second half of the tribulation. It is the judgment of the great harlot seen sitting on many waters. The great harlot is a personification of spiritual idolatry, spiritual fornication. This Babylon will dominate all of mankind. Chapter 17 is referring to Babylon as this final, godless, humanistic, worldwide religious system. Charles Chiniqui, in the 1800s, he was a Roman Catholic priest. And he became greatly troubled by the evils of the church. And so he took his doubts and he took his disillusionments to his superior. But that didn't help him much because his superior admitted something to him. His superior admitted that his friend, Bishop Plessis, had been plagued by similar misgivings. So he told Charles how the bishop had revealed his uneasy feelings to him because he'd opened up before the bishop the pages of the history of the church written by two of their own cardinals in the Roman Catholic Church that documented and pointed out the names of more than 50 popes who had been atheists. He read aloud the lives of, of Borgia and Alexander VI and dozens of others who deserved at the time to be publicly hanged for their crimes of adultery, murder, debauchery of every kind in Rome, Naples, and all around the world. His superior had read to his own bishop the record of public and undeniable crimes of several of the Alexanders and the Johns, all who were supposed to be successors of the apostles, men who had sunk deep into the abyss of every kind of iniquity and sin. And for five hours this reading went on, five hours listing the atrocities of the Catholic Church as this superior in the church read to his bishop the catalog of crimes. Now the priest, grown old and gray in service to Rome, was confronted by Charles, his own young vicar, troubled with the same kind of similar thoughts. And listen to what he said to Charles. Listen to his response. He said, when Satan tries to shake your faith by the scandals that you see in the church, remember that Stephen, after having fought, not the Stephen in the Bible, he's referring to Stephen in the Catholic Church, after having fought with his adversary, Pope Constantine II put out his eyes and condemned him to die. Remember the Pope who through the revenge against his predecessor had him exhumed 
brought his dead body before the judges, then charged him with the most horrible crimes, which he proved by the testimony of scores of witnesses. And then he got him, the dead pope, to be condemned, to be beheaded, dragged through the streets of Rome and thrown into the river Tiber. Remember, he said, that more than 12 popes have been raised to that high and holy dignity by the rich and influential prostitutes of Rome, with whom they were publicly living the most scandalous way. Remember John the 11th, the son of Pope Sergius, who was consecrated pope when only 12 years old by the influence of his prostitute mother, Morosia, who was so horribly horribly extreme that she was deposed by the people in the clergy of Rome. So listen to his conclusion about this matter. He said, this is what the priest said to young Charles. If our holy church has been able to pass through such storms without perishing, is it not a living proof that Christ is her pilot, that she is imperishable and infallible because St. Peter is her foundation? Well, Charles like many of you, remained unimpressed by this summary of vileness ever present in the Catholic Church. And he would later say when the priest was exhibiting to me the horrible and unmentionable crimes of so many of our popes to calm my fears and strengthen my shaken faith, a mysterious voice was repeating to my soul the dear Savior's words, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a bad tree good fruit. The Apostle John was astonished himself at what he saw in this vision, that pagan Rome should hate and persecute the people of God is bad enough. That is bad enough. But the very fact that Revelation says she'll be drunken with their blood during the tribulation is an astonishment indeed. The uh, atrocities inflicted upon God's people by Rome fill entire books of church history. Charles Chiniqui he came to understand the gospel of Christ. He came to life in Christ. He left the church of Rome, which is what anybody should do when they come to life in Christ. They should get out of the Catholic church. And then he spent years traveling, warning people about the dangers of the Catholic church. It was Charles that said this. He warned, he said, because modern Protestants have not only forgotten what Rome was, what she is, what she will forever be, the most irreconcilable and powerful enemy of the gospel of Christ, but they consider her almost as a branch of the church whose cornerstone is Christ. If you don't see the danger of the Catholic church, then you don't know the Catholic church. It is satanic. In the Middle Ages of the Catholic Church, it ravaged like a, a wild animal. Torquemada, the first inquisitor general, was appointed to his office in 1483. You know how he celebrated his promotion to the so-called holy office? He burned alive some 2,000 prisoners of the Inquisition. That's how he celebrated his newfound position. He went after everybody. He went after princes, ladies, educated men, magistrates, ministers of the state. He burned at the stake upward of 10,000 people. But he was not alone. During the regimes of the three men that followed after him, another 8,000 people were put to death. And some 
200,000 people suffered horrible punishments in the torture chambers of the Inquisition. And Rome, Rome has not finished her brutal work. Right now she treads softly, but when the time comes again for her to sit supreme, her bloodlust will come upon her once more. And John sees John sees her in the first six verses of the chapter here of Revelation 17, joined with these ritualistic churches, all the world religions. John sees her as she is at the end of her days, drunken with the blood of the saints. And it will be the total apostasy of the Christian faith in order to form this one world alliance with powers far older than the church itself. Join me this morning again with verse 7 of Revelation 17. John says, but the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and ten horns. So here's the beautiful thing about chapter 17 of Revelation. Verses 1 through 6 give us this vision of the beast. And now, from here to the end of the chapter, an angel explains that vision. So let's take a look at verse 8. It says, the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, this is a very important verse to understand. So let's walk through it carefully. There are time markers. I always tell you guys, context, look at context and look for time markers in the text. There are time markers here in the text, in the word of God, regarding the beast in the future. And the angel says the beast was and is not and will ascend out of this bottomless pit. Now, the beast is this political empire of the tribulation. The woman that rides the beast is the spiritual harlot. And the abyss, the bottomless pit, is the home of Satan and his demons. This is telling us that this power of this political kingdom of the Antichrist is satanic. It comes from the pits of hell. This kingdom will go to perdition, utter destruction. It will be destroyed at the return of Jesus Christ. Notice the next part of this verse. Those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Do you remember chapter 13, verse 4? Look again at what it says. It says, so they worship the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, who is like the beast? They're marveling. Who is able to make war with him? There will be power in this final kingdom of man that comes from Satan himself. It will cause mankind to marvel, to wonder. With the book of Revelation, we have to be careful, so careful as we interpret it. We need to be careful when it speaks of the beast. Is this text speaking of the Antichrist? Or is this the final kingdom? Because both are described in Revelation as the beast. But the context of each text gives us the meaning. We always go to the context. The context of each passage gives us the meaning. And the context in verse 7 very clearly identifies the beast as having ten horns, referring to a kingdom, referring to a kingdom. And in verse 10, it will show us again that this is about a kingdom and kingdoms. 
The world government is going to be entirely satanic in power. It is the beast of the world government that is revived in verse 8. When you guys hear me talk of a future revived Roman Empire, it is in part because of this very verse right here in verse 8. The Roman Empire will absolutely rise again only to be completely destroyed. That's why it's talking about everyone marveling. You know, Christians today stand in amazement. Many of you, many, many of my own family, myself included, we all stand in amazement that after almost 2,000 years of church history, Israel has become a nation again. That's amazing to us. But who is going to marvel in the tribulation when the world understands that the Roman Empire has been dusted off from the pages of history to be given new life, the revived Roman Empire? Who will marvel? Those who dwell on the earth, it says. Those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Rome is going to rise again to be destroyed and those without life in Christ in the tribulation will be deceived and they will follow the satanic power of this final kingdom of man. And they're going to be in awe of this incredible reemergence of this empire. You know, right now in our country, we are seeing the emergence of a totalitarian state. And I pray that it does not continue down that path. But let's call it like it is. That's what it is. But how much worse it will be during the tribulation when the totalitarian state rules the world and is merged with this anti-God apostate church. Pick it up with verse 9. It says, here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. I find it so fitting how verse 9 starts out. That verse 9 starts with the words, here is the mind which has wisdom. Isn't that ironic? It's a phrase that anticipates that this is a very difficult teaching. This is very difficult. Not everyone in this room will understand everything in this text. Not everyone in this room will even receive it. This is God's wisdom to those with maturity in the faith, attentiveness, and spiritual ability to receive it. The first key to understanding this is verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. On which the woman sits. Now, it's very common to hear out there, if you turn on a podcast or read a book, it's common to hear that the seven mountains refer to Rome, to the seven hills of the ancient city. And yes, the spiritual harlot will include the apostate church of Rome. Yes, that's true, but that's not the subject here. It shifts. That's not the subject. This is about the beast, not the woman who rides it. She rides upon the kings and powers of the world. She inspires, she leads, she controls them. But she's not one of them. She bears the name Babylon. She is longer lived than any one empire in the text. And she sits upon the seven kingdoms. Her spiritual adultery pollutes them all. She doesn't just sit on one of them. She sits on them all. Which is why last week we talked about the spiritual adultery that flowed through the ancient nations. This spiritual harlot rides on all seven, just as the political empires dominated the ancient world, especially Israel. 
So it is that spiritual idolatry of Babylon flowing through the ancient empires. The seven hills identified in Rome that people refer to, it's funny to me that the list of seven has always changed over time. It's changed because the city grew. And so they had to keep changing which, which hills they thought it was. But I will have you notice that the text refers to mountains. And these small hills in Rome are anything but mountains. Even if you go to the top of a building and you do your best to angle the camera down to really make it look like they're huge, to try to make them look bigger, you can't tell me those are mountains. You can't. Nice picture, not mountains. If we look at the text, verse 10 identifies the mountains as a symbolic reference to the seven kings. Now, this goes deep. You might not see this right away, but stick with it. We need to look closer. Notice how verse 9 rolls right into verse 10, okay? They roll right together. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. These are also seven kings, is what it says. But our translations do something here. Our translations add the word there in verse 10, and that's not actually in the text. It doesn't exist in the Greek text. So if we remember, the Greek does not have punctuation, doesn't have periods and commas and all that stuff. We can bump this first part of verse 10 with verse 9 because this is how it actually reads in the Greek. Read it. It says, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits are also seven kings. See, the Bible is identifying the mountains for us as seven kings. This changes things. This changes our understanding of the passage. And it fits perfectly with verse 10. Five of the kings have fallen. One existed in John's lifetime. The seventh is yet to come and will be followed by another described as the eighth, which is the beast itself. Now, a mountain is a very common image given in the word of God to represent kingdoms. It's a very common image to represent kingdoms, to represent empires or authority. Let me just give you a few examples. We could go on and on about this, but let me just give you a few. David spoke of his kingdom this way in Psalm 30, verse 7, where he said, Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. Now, is he talking about a mountain? No, he was talking, if you look at the context, he's talking about his kingdom. David acknowledged the Lord had made his kingdom strong. Jeremiah 51, the Lord speaking against the kingdom of Babylon, the Lord said in verse 25, Behold, I am against you, O Destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord, and I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks, and make you a burnt mountain. So this concept of a kingdom being referred to as a mountain should make you think of Daniel 2.35, referring to the kingdom of the Messiah itself. And what does it say? And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Do you guys see it now? This is how the concept of mountains is used in Revelation 17. So I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but I do not believe for a second that this is about the seven hills of Rome. It's not even about a physical location. This is telling us of seven empires or seven governments. You know, over the centuries, if you know your Bible, Israel has been dominated by six world powers that is right out of your Old Testament. First, who enslaved her? Egypt. Egypt enslaved her first, about 1,500 years before Christ. Then second, about 800 years later in 722 B.C., 
Assyria overran the 10 northern tribes of Israel. Then third, a little more than 100 years after that, in 586 BC, Babylon destroys the city of Jerusalem and carries the remaining two tribes of Israel captivity. Then fourth, the Medo Persian Empire arrives on the scene and overtakes the Babylonians. And fifth, the Greeks overtake the Medo Persian Empire about 300 years before Christ. And then number six, who comes along? Well, the Roman Empire comes along, right? They come along and they snuff out the Greek Empire just before the time of Jesus Christ. Six empires, six empires, you can count them with me, dominated the nation of Israel throughout her history and persecuted the people of God. Five have fallen, the text tells us. It's right there in the Bible. Five have fallen. Who is that? That's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. They no longer dominate. They're gone. The one is, the one that's dominating Israel at the time of this writing in the first century is the Roman Empire. And the other has not yet come, a future empire which will dominate the nation of Israel once again. The Bible is filled with these warnings about the revived Roman Empire in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 9, Matthew 24. The Antichrist will head up this revived Roman Empire. He's going to make peace with Israel. But half of the way through the tribulation, Jerusalem will be overrun. And the Antichrist, he will set himself up as God, and the Jewish people will have to run for their lives, which is why Jesus said this in Matthew 24. He said, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Verse 11 itself is another difficult verse. In Revelation, this is a difficult verse. This is the final form of the Gentile power written by the harlot, the apostate religion. The revived empire, the Roman empire, will be in, a, in place in the tribulation. It's going to be in place. This is the seventh head of the beast. At first, the kingdom of the Antichrist is just over the Roman Empire. But then his reign will spread. His, his reign will spread and become global. This final form of world government here is the eighth beast itself. It is the world empire of the Great Tribulation. So the beast in verse 11 is this world empire that will be destroyed by Jesus Christ at his second coming. And so these verses are telling us that during the first half of the tribulation, there's going to be an alliance between the Antichrist, the ruler of the Middle East, and the apostate church at that time. But this will come to a head at the midpoint of the tribulation when the kingdom of the Antichrist becomes worldwide and the worship turns to be of the Antichrist himself. If you've ever studied Roman history, you've probably come across the name of Julian the Apostate. He was the emperor of Rome from 361 to 363 A.D. And those few years of ruling were enough. This guy was, was a horrible man. He was named the apostate because he was a constant enemy of the Christian faith, a constant brutal enemy of the Christian faith, because he publicly converted to paganism. And when his army was on the march to Persia, some of the soldiers got a hold of a Christian. And they decided to torture this Christian. But they got tired of it after a while. They got tired of just torturing this poor Christian. And so they looked into his eyes and they spoke to their, to their helpless victim with infinite scorn in their voices. And they said to him, where now is your carpenter God? And the prisoner looked up through the pain 
the blood and the agony to say, where now is my carpenter God? He's building a coffin for your emperor. That's the promise of revelation. Isn't it? It's the promise of revelation. Yes, a dark time is coming. But there's also a time coming when the king of kings is going to return and he's going to put an end once and for all to this final Roman Empire. And that's where the text takes us. Verse 12 in your text. It says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdoms as yet, but they receive authority for one hour, a short time, as kings with the beast. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, for he is the Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. These are the ten horns of the beast, the ten kings, the ten toes of the statue in Daniel chapter 2. These ten kings will reign. The Antichrist, according to Daniel 7, will push out three kings out of their place. He will take control as this kingdom takes over the world. Now, this kingdom has not been fulfilled. It has not at all. These kings will reign for a short time, but these kings will be of one mind, giving their power and authority to the beast. Then look at verse 14. They will make war with the lamb, but the lamb is going to do what? He's going to overcome them because he is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. He is God himself. Watch the end of the verse. It says, and those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. This is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. John records this in Revelation 19. He says, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called what? The word of God and the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of almighty God and he on his robe and on his thigh, a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because that's who he is. He is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Lord will strike the nations down just with a simple spoken word. And those that are with him are called, chosen, faithful. Tribulation saints included who have already died for their faith and church-age believers now returning with Jesus Christ. Still referring to the spiritual Babylon in verse 15, where it says in chapter 17, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. In the book of Revelation, when you're studying it, just like any other book in the Bible, we interpret water literally, unless there's good reason not to. Here, a specific symbolic meaning is actually told to us. The spiritual harlot Babylon will sit upon the people and nations of the world. There will be an ecumenical worldwide religious system that will be made of all nations, all languages. Great political power with the beast, great spiritual power with the harlot. And then we read starting in verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, 
These will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the word of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now there is some very significant teaching here, very significant teaching. The ten horns, the ten kings, destroy the woman riding the beast, and it's graphic. It's a graphic image here. The majority text, the manuscripts tell us that this should read that it is both the ten kings and the beast that will hate the harlot. The Antichrist and the ten kings, they will grow to hate the harlot. You know, when dictators are friendly with religion, when they butter up to religion and they get all close with religious people, it's typically a sign that they're just looking to do what? They're trying to get the influence, the influence that religion has on people. That's all they're trying to do. That's why you see all our leaders always go to church. They go to church. But then there comes a time when they want to destroy that religion. The marriage of the church and the state, it never works out to be a happy one. The Church of Jesus Christ historically has always, always been the most influential in the world when it has maintained a separate position from the government. The destruction of the harlot, the destruction of all that goes with her. The spiritual harlot will be stripped of all her outer garments, the purple and scarlet of verse 4. The kings will take her wealth from her, expose her corruption. They will destroy her. Her flesh will be eaten, the Bible says, and she'll be burned with fire. She'll be devoured and destroyed once and for all. Graphic wording, why? Graphic wording because it's designed to show us that this great spiritual and apostate church of the first half of the tribulation is going to come to an end. And when we bring in the other scriptures, we know that this is taking place about half of the way through the tribulation. Because during the first half of the tribulation, the apostate church is going to spread its idolatry and counterfeit worship of God all over the globe, all over the world. And during this time, the Jews are going to be able to worship. They're going to be allowed to worship in the rebuilt temple. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world at that time. The religions of the world, apart from those with faith in Jesus Christ, will unite into one great apostate worldwide church. But in the middle of the tribulation, it's going to switch. The rule of the Roman Empire, the political head of the world empire, will proclaim himself as the dictator of the world. He's no longer going to need the help of the apostate church. So the people of the world are going to be told this, worship him or die. Those are your choices. The Antichrist will destroy the world church and replace it with the worship of himself. You know, when men stop worshiping God, they promptly start worshiping man with disastrous results. And the man that first said that was George Orwell. The Antichrist will demand people to worship him. But take a look again at verse 17. It says, for God has put it into their hearts. Isn't that interesting? God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. See, at the Tower of Babel, you guys remember from last week, at the Tower of Babel, the people wanted to be of one purpose. That's what they wanted. That's what Genesis records. They wanted to be of one purpose. In the tribulation, God is going to give them what they want. They want to be of one purpose? Here you go. You got it. You can be of one purpose. But it will be to fulfill his purpose. 
See, all the nations of the world and the kings will give their kingdoms to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled, until Christ returns. Telling us this, that in his sovereignty, God will permit the wickedness and depravity of man to increase until the cup of iniquity overflows. The kings of the tribulation will submit to the leadership of the Antichrist. Because why? Well, this is going to help them. This is going to help them achieve their goal of power and of taking the world away from God. It's all a part of God's plan and sovereign purpose to bring evil leaders into judgment. So yes, it can be discouraging right now to see evil men in the White House. It can be discouraging to see evil men in Congress and at the helm of the nations of the world. Yes, that's discouraging. But what do we learn here in Revelation? We learn that these evil powers all serve the purposes of our sovereign God. And even the ultimate wickedness of man is but a tool in the hands of God. He's working out his plan. The final verse of the chapter identifies the harlot with the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. But verse 5, remember, already identified this for us and told us that this was a mystery, not a literal city. We let the text define the meaning. Still referring to the spiritual harlot, still referring to the spiritual idolatry that came out of that great city of Babylon that has dominated the nations and is going to do so again. Religion has always guided the rulers of the world. It's always guided the rulers of the world because just as it matters what we believe here, just as it matters doctrine in the church, it matters what they believe. During the first half of the tribulation, the guiding influence will be the spiritual harlot of the false religion of Babylon. And the kings are going to hate the harlot. Why? Because she will claim the right to rule the nations. She's going to claim that right and they're going to hate it. And for many centuries, not a nation in Europe stirred without a nod from the Vatican. In recent years, Rome's political powers has been curbed, and she's had to trim her sails a bit because the winds have been opposed to her. She's been on the sideline for now, but Rome has not given up her claims. She has not. And these claims were made clear under Pope Gregory VII back in the 11th century when he said this. Read his own words. He said, it is laid down that the Roman pontiff is universal bishop, that his name is the only one of its kind in the world. To him alone, it belongs to depose or reconcile bishops. All princes are bound to kiss his feet. Strong words. Their words. He has the right to depose emperors and to absolve subjects from their allegiance. He holds in his hands the supreme mediation in questions of war and peace. And he alone may adjudge contested secessions to kingdoms. All kingdoms are held as fiefs under Peter. The Roman church has never erred. The Pope is above all judgment. That's the type of spiritual domination that will come in the first half of the tribulation with the Catholic Church and the world religions uniting to lead the world astray. A pastor who had once served in World War II shared his story about when he had taken part in the liberation of the Dachau concentration camp. His story 
was written down about what he experienced at Dachau. It was the end of the war, and as the soldiers marched through the gates of this camp, nothing could prepare them for what they found in the boxcars within the camp. And the man said, a buddy and I were assigned to, to one boxcar, and inside were human bodies stacked neat in rows like you stack firewood. Most were corpses, but a few of them still had a faint, a faint pulse. The Germans, ever meticulous, had planned out the rows, alternating the heads and the feet, and accommodating different sizes and shapes of the bodies. The former soldier said, our job was like moving furniture. We would pick up a body, and then we'd carry it to a designated area. He said, I spent two hours in the boxcar, two hours that for me included every known emotion, rage, pity, shame, every negative emotion. They came in waves, he said, all but the rage. That stayed fueling our work. Then a fellow soldier named Chuck agreed to escort 12 of the SS officers in charge of the camp to an interrogation center. And a few minutes later, after the crew was, was still working in the boxcar, they heard bursts of a machine gun, and Chuck soon came strolling out with the smoke still coming out of his, his weapon. And when asked if anyone reported Chuck or took disciplinary action against him for gunning down 12 unarmed men, listen to what this pastor said. He said, no, and that's what got to me. It was on that day that I felt called by God to become a pastor. First, there was the horror of the corpses in the boxcar, and I could not absorb such a scene. I did not even know that such absolute evil existed. But when I saw it, I knew that beyond a doubt, I must spend my life serving the God who opposes such evil. And then came this incident with Chuck. I had a nauseating fear that the captain might call on me to escort the next group of SS guards. And I had an even more dreaded fear that I might do the same thing as Chuck. Because the beast that was within those guards was also within me. Revelation 17 is here for this purpose, to confront us with this truth that there is absolute evil in this world. It is the reason that there is 42 million babies were murdered last year in the world under the banner of choice. That's the reason why. It's the reason right now as many as 1 million Uyghurs in China are enslaved in labor camps. That's the reason why. It's the same evil that's alive and well in the church today. Men wanting preeminence, glory, honor. Or how about this? Men failing to honor their wives. Men failing to train up their children in the word of God. It's all evil. It's the ecumenical mindset that desires to get along with people at the expense of God's truth. That's evil. And it is the mindset of our leaders wanting to make the United States of America a part of a global empire, a new world order, where freedom of speech is limited and where opposition is crushed. It's evil. And it's right from the pits of hell. So knowing that this evil exists, it helps us. Why do I say that? It helps us greatly. It helps us to know what we may be facing. It helps us to know. It helps us to see the contrast between God's truth and the lies that surround us. 
It helps us to remain true to our calling to be separate and faithful unto God. So don't exchange the mercy and grace of God for the religion of men. Satan's deception is here now. He is the father of lies. Paul told Timothy, he said, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That was then, 2,000 years later, where do you think we're at? Paul also gave the solution, didn't he? Read the next verses. He says, but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. And that from childhood, you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Salvation here, deliverance, not a reference to eternal salvation, not See, Paul is telling Timothy, Timothy was a believer, of course, that the key to living while being persecuted in this life is what? To continue to walk by faith. See, the scriptures can deliver us. They can guide us through the persecution. They can guide us through the storms, helping us to keep our faith in Christ. So stand guard against the deception by staying in the word of God. Stay in the word of God. Men, stand guard by protecting your family. It's your responsibility. Protect your family from the evil influence of the world instead of being the ones to allow it in. See, it's our job, men, to lead them to follow Christ, not to lead our families into sin. I don't, I don't know of a lady that's married in the church of Jesus Christ that wants their husband to take them more into sin. They want you to lead them into Christ. We live in a world corrupted by sin, and God has never promised to protect us from every harm, every difficult thing that we face. We will go through difficult times in life. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind. But I, I encourage you to ask God to help you use those times to grow in his grace. Use those times to grow in him. And then rely on the God of scriptures, echoing the words of Psalm 31, and we'll close with this. In you, O oh Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening. And we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.